Welcome to Project Update, a weekly podcast about the projects we're working on and how Swift UI is ruining my life. I'm Joe Simpson. And I'm Dave Ramsey. How's it going, Dave? Doing good, Joe. How are you doing? Oh, doing pretty good. What have you been working <laughs> on this week? Uh, lots more antler. Antler. Lots, lots and lots of antler. Um, <laughs> I have made significant progress to my understanding of how this works and what it's doing and how all this fits together, which actually just makes running into problems more frustrating. Oh, so you're not, you're not done? I'm, no, I'm not done. <laughs> I am not done. Um, so to get some of this, it helps to understand a little bit about the way that parsers work. And I had to remind myself of elements of this. There's kind of two passes. The first step in the parsing process is often referred to as uh, lexing mm -hmm. or tokenizing and lexing. And so it's going through and just chopping up the text into smaller bits based upon kind of what you know about them at that moment without worrying about the larger context. Okay, so this is a word. This is a um, a integer. This is a floating point number. This is an open parenthesis. This is an addition symbol. That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And you just kind of chunk the text up into those little bits. And then after that, you then go through and apply a series of parsing rules that say... Oh, so immediately after an open paren, a plus is not valid. We're not expecting an operator after an open paren. We're expecting an identifier, a word, or maybe a number, or something like that. And so it can then look at these things and know that, um, you know, the... Um, square braces after an identifier sorry square brackets after an identifier is for um uh array operations mm -hmm. but in a series of function calls it's for optional repeating things like filemaker can do um and so it, it can then start applying context after the fact and I kind of screwed all this up, at least partly because Antler does it in a weird way. When you write the grammar for the language that you're parsing, you at the top of the page is all the parser rules. And at the bottom of the page is all the lexer rules. And so even though I knew lexer's actually running first, my brain didn't really internalize that yet. Hmm. And so I was thinking the, the one that I've been working with the most right now is looking at um, escaped identifiers. So these are the places where FileMaker has, say, a field name that contains what is normally an invalid character for a field name. And so you can wrap it in curly braces with a dollar sign at the beginning and FileMaker will go, oh, you want everything between here and here to be the identifier. Now we can talk to this field with a weird name. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what I've been working with. It's sufficiently complex to make a good starting point. 
Um, because just going, I mean, I, I've already gotten past, hey, I handed it a number and it went, look, it's a number. Um, and I handed it a number and an addition and another number. And it goes, hey, look, that's a plus operator in the middle. Ta-da. Um, so the next stage was getting into these escaped identifiers. And so when I started, I was looking at it and saying, okay, find the dollar sign open curly brace and the closed curly brace. And then every character inside that is the escaped identifier. That was, that was my rule or my rules. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that I was like, okay, so what I need is to write a Lexer rule that says basically almost every character is possible except for another dollar sign open curly brace and or closed curly brace, i.e. those can't go inside one of these things. Um, Can they though? <laughs> uh, well, FileMaker won't accept the calculation. Good. Um, the dollar sign, I think, is valid. But once you get into the dollar sign open curly brace or close curly brace, it won't even let you type it in. Like, it doesn't parse. What about other just curly parsing. braces without the dollar sign? Uh, I know the close curly brace doesn't. I don't know about the open one. Hmm. Um, I mean, granted, this is, this is already something that's annoying and people shouldn't be doing in the first place. But... <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, and, and unfortunately, the problem is that when you're doing it in FileMaker, it's not clear when you're naming the field what the impact is going to be. It says you shouldn't do that. You get a dialogue, but then it goes ahead and lets you. Mm-hmm. And I think that dialogue would be more effective if it said, every calculation that you write that talks to this field is going to have to do this to it. And you're going to find that really annoying. So don't. Um. But I don't know, maybe, maybe that's why I haven't written my own file maker. Mm-hmm. I'd put in error messages like that and everybody would hate me. Um, <laughs> so I thought to a certain degree, again, even though I knew that the Lexer runs first and then the parser runs, that I could use these rules cooperatively and say, find the thing at the beginning and then find the thing at the end and everything in between is the escaped identifier. And the problem with doing that is then I need a Lexer rule that basically says any sequence of characters, basically, works here. And the problem is, if you have a Lexer rule that says that, the Lexer runs first. So that rule basically eats anything, (laughs) including, like, operators. And so that was doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. So the trick was to get back to kind of a more core understanding is go through with the lexer and break it into words and numbers and operators and white space. And then in the parser, I can say, find the dollar sign open curly brace and the close curly brace. And in between that is a sequence of almost any token that we've already identified. And, and so it could be... On that. <clears throat> no. No? No. Because the lexers already run. Basically, everything gets lexed at the beginning. Oh, so you can't call the lexer multiple times. You can't lexer, then parse, then... 
Like I micro could theoretically, I could make multiple grammars and then effectively have multiple parsers. But in theory, I should be able to do all of this with a single parser. Um, but to a certain degree, that's we'll we'll get into that problem because I play with that exact issue a little bit later in what I'm messing with. Um, so what's really cool there then is I've got these categories of tokens. I'm like, this is an operator. And I don't really care what kind of operator it is. It's a plus, a minus, a multiplication, a division. I don't need to do the math. And so I don't need to worry about the difference. But when you're doing one of these escaped identifiers, operators are valid as part of the identifier. But I'll also have the ability to set up a slightly different rule that says that when I'm building a normal identifier, like a normal field name, the operator is not valid. And so it would see the operator then as a delimiter, as the end of the identifier. Okay. So a field name followed by a slash. The slash is not part of the field name unless you're inside the dollar sign and curly braces. Um, it's, yeah. So th this is where my problem has been. Is like, how exactly does this work? And the difference between these two things is a little subtle, at least partially because the words that I'm using end up sounding like the same thing. But when you're looking at it in the grammar, you're actually um, drawing very clear lines around sections and the way certain sequences of letters can occur and things like that. And so... Um, if you're, if you happen to be looking at the grammar or the two grammars on screen at the time, it would be very obvious what the difference is. So I apologize for promptly losing everybody. <laughs> so I started making progress there and that's kind of chunking things up in kind of the way I want. And I know this because there's some basic output functions that are like debugging functions for just saying, write this thing out in the with groupings of the way the parser understands it after running. Okay. It's very visually weird, but I'm learning how to read this. So next step is getting into doing some unit testing. And, you know, just all by itself, there's over 300 FileMaker functions. So <laughs> to really do this right before I'm done, I'm going to have over a thousand unit tests. Because I want to make sure that all of these things work even when weird combinations happen. Mm -hmm. So, uh, escaped identifiers inside a function call. Or, I haven't yet nailed down whether it's possible. I know you can name fields with weird characters, but can you name a custom function with weird characters? Can you escape a function name? Not to mention, like, a weird field name being referenced in a let statement that's been coded around as text and that's being passed to a SQL statement as a parameter inside another let statement. Yes. Yes. Those kind of like terrorist calculations you were receiving a couple of weeks ago. Right. So I, I'm going to end up having lots and lots and lots of these. And the cool part with unit testing is if I ever find something that breaks, I add another unit test and it will never break again. Or, or rather, it won't break again without me knowing it. You're going to write more unit test code than I write regular code. 
Maybe. maybe. Pretty sure. So, unfortunately, so I write the unit testing, and the unit testing tries to look at this in a different way than just dumping it out to the console. I actually want to be able to test that, you know, um, one way to look at a FileMaker calculation is as a series of expressions separated by operators. So it could be uh, one plus four or one ampersand um, the upper value open paren some string. You know, but either of those things are just separate expressions separated by operators. And at its simplest level, you could have a single expression or you can have multiple expressions. But in the end, it's all one big sequence of expressions. Um, and so they give you this antler library is really cool. It gives you multiple ways of kind of digging into this. Um, the first is what they call a listener, which is a callback based kind of parser thing. So as the parsers go through, you can go, it just kind of starts spitting out notifications that go, Hey, found a field, found a table, look, an operator. And your code can do various things depending upon what the little signal is that it received. Mm -hmm. Um, and Honestly, that works fine. I'm getting exactly the answers I anticipate from the listener. The problem is that the listener is basically single pass. So think of it as like a streaming thing. It starts at the beginning and just starts spitting out notifications as it finds stuff. And if you get to a point and you want to know about something that happened earlier, you can't go back. Mm. Okay. The second option is what they call a visitor which parses the whole thing into a big tree structure. And then the visitor can kind of reach into the tree and you can say, okay, generate for me an array of all of the expressions. Just each expression chunked up because those are the pieces that I care about. Mm -hmm. And you can actually go into that tree and edit things. And then when you're all done, turn the whole thing back into text or something like that. And so... That's what I started with. It's like, hey, I have an escaped identifier. Just make sure that when I say, give me the first escaped identifier, that I get back the thing that I expected to have. It's generally how the unit tests are written because it allows you to kind of ignore everything else that, that happens in the calculation and just ask for one little element, which is great for unit testing. And... It works exactly the way I would ex expect sometimes. <laughs> um, when I say, give me the expression, it finds the open, the, the dollar sign, open curly brace, and everything through the closed curly brace, and properly lops it off from, like if I say, that stuff plus one, two, three. It separates out that dollar sign open curly brace to the closed curly brace. It grabs that chunk of text and goes, ha ha, an expression. But the thing is, my parser has rules that say the part inside there is actually an escaped identifier. And so when I tell the unit test to say, hey, 
where's the first escaped identifier? It goes, yeah, I got nothing. Empty string. But, but you had the thing. <laughs> and even worse, as part of doing this testing, I wrote a listener. And so when the streaming thing is going through, it goes, hey, look, we found an escaped identifier. And it's just this part, just the part inside. The actual field reference or table reference. We found it. I'm like, great, you found it. Why isn't the unit test finding it? So the listener is finding it, but the visitor isn't. But I really want the visitor to work because if the visitor doesn't work, then the kind of code that I'm going to have to write significantly changes. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So sometime later today, I'm going to be making my first Stack Overflow post. <laughs> I've started constructing it, being very careful about my language, being very careful to clearly define the problems and where my issues are and things like that, And because I want to get it right. Um, and the writer I get it, the more likely I am to get a usable answer. Mm -hmm. What it strongly suggests is that there's still something about the way visitors work that I don't understand. And I could go around it by just using a listener. But that still means that there's something in there that I don't understand. And if I completely don't understand it, then there's a really good chance that that thing's going to come back and bite me later. Like, this is still too early in the process for me to go, yeah, black hole. Don't care about that part. Um, yeah. Well, Dave, it sounds like your visitor isn't a very good listener. <laughs> Uh, yes. Thank you, Joe. Um, That's really all I can contribute to this conversation. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's my big one. Because once I can get the unit testing going and stuff like that, um, I mean, there's portions of unit testing I could do. And I could go ahead and proceed. I can get some progress by going, okay, let's just start tokenizing out the comments and strings and handling escaped double quotes inside strings and all of that kind of stuff. I can start writing on there and make some more progress if I want to. But this one thing with the visitor is making me twitchy. Mm -hmm. And I know when I ask the question, one of two things is going to happen. The first is somebody's going to go, oh yeah, moron here. Just this. This is the thing that you messed up. This is why it's not working. Great answer. Thank you. Mm. They can call me whatever names they like. Um, <clears throat> the second option, though, is much scarier, where everybody goes, no, that's exactly how it's supposed to work. Uh, I don't know why it's not working on yours. At which point I have to go, okay, is this some spot where the interaction of Antler with Mono with running on a Mac has a problem. Yeah, it works on my machine. Yeah. Well, and that'll be an answer all its own. Um, so I can figure out what's wrong with the visitor. I can move entirely to a listener-based process. Or the third option is I kind of throw out the listener and the visitor, ignore parsing entirely, and just use Antler as a lexer. 
And so if I've got a nice chunked up, this is a word, this is an operator, this is a whatever, I can effectively write my own parser. Um, because honestly, a big chunk of the problem was the lexing. But I'd really like to be able to use all the other really cool tools that they've got in this library. I just got to get across this hump. Mm -hmm. um, and then I can start getting into other weird problems like... Okay, I can identify a word in English, but how do I do it in Japanese? Oh, this whole problem <laughs> is just not good. It's it's further exacerbated by the fact that I don't speak Chinese or, or Japanese. And I, <laughs> I certainly don't uh, uh, read Japanese. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is one of those problems that I would have taken a look at doing this a month ago, looked over the cliff into oblivion at how many permutations there are, and I would have just backed away slowly and said, nope, this is never happening. You are yeah. not that type of person. And that's going to take my unit tests from at least a thousand to probably upwards in the range of like 10,000. <laughs> Because in theory, I can rewrite every single one of my unit tests for each of the languages that FileMaker supports. I mean, you're going to end up writing a tool to write your unit test for you. So I've already done some of that. <laughs> of course you have. <laughs> there was a thing that I needed that... Um, as a general rule of thumb, when it's identifying specific words, the lexer and parser rules are case sensitive. And so you end up having to write a fair amount of additional text to go, well, you could spell it all these different ways. And <laughs> so I ended up, there's a, a notation you can use to help do that, but I needed the ability to kind of expand this stuff. So type in a, a uh, an alphabet feed it into a filemaker database get back out 26 lines of code okay now i can do the rest of it nice um <laughs> there was another section to that what else did i do in there um there was another whole table there that i wrote i'm curious now where did that go oh because i'm doing all this on the laptop Mm. that's the other thing is i've kind of kept it isolated from the main project that i'm mostly doing on the desktop writing it on the laptop and also along the way getting used to spending time on a smaller screen which will give me some flexibility later if i want to get out of the office some more which would be nice because i'm just not used to doing development on my laptop anymore and the more i keep not doing work on my laptop it's self-reinforcing yeah so this project is happening on my laptop, the exploration of Antler and the rest of the project is kind of happening on my desktop. And that leads into another fun little problem, which is I'm, I'm afraid that I'm going to lose track of the other code <laughs> and not lose track. Like I'm going to lose it. It's all in hosted uh, uh, version control and things mm -hmm. like that. It's not going to disappear. But there was, there's a mental process in getting into a project 
and particularly in getting into new languages that I'm not necessarily fluent in. And so I had this, this alternate custom electron that I designed that was using C sharp in the back end and WebKit and things like that in the front end and doing this JavaScript HTML development and all of that was working and I was making good progress and I was really understanding what I was doing. And I have now set that entirely aside <laughs> to play with Antler and a, I may have to break it up some and go, even if I bump into a stumbling block on Antler, I'm going to go back to the other code and just write on it for like a week mm -hmm. and then come back to Antler and keep going because you know losing a month on the main code to write the parser which is about what i was expecting is not all that terrible but if that stretches longer it may severely hamper my ability to get back into this it's just another slowdown hmm. i don't i don't really want that but i need this antler stuff to progress and unfortunately, I can't blame it all on Apple. <laughs> I, I wish I could. This is all Apple's fault. Apple broke Antler. And uh, I don't have to worry about it anymore. Yeah. Is that how that Joe, works? on the other hand, you, uh, you, you have an excuse for why your project is not progressing that way, yeah? Do I? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can, you can certainly pull out the excuse. You have a reason. Whether it's an excuse is a secondary question. I mean, if Xcode was a mirror, I would look into it and just see myself. Anyway, so I have been working on... I've been really bad at working on anything other than the one thing that doesn't work. Which is the bad way of doing things. I, I resemble that remark. <laughs> um, so I should have spent all last week working on other interfaces doing some of the reporting stuff, working on some of the cloud kit stuff, anything else other than trying to fix the modal data entry issue that I spent pretty much the entire week on. So I want to basically talk about everything that I have done and where I am now and what my plan is. So from the most basic standpoint, what I am trying to achieve Seems super easy. In fact, it is super easy. I had it working in UI Kit months ago. I still have it working in UI Kit. I can re-implement it in UI Kit, aside from the weird auto layout stuff, in about an hour. Like all of this is really basic stuff. What I want to do is have a list view that has, which is the Swift UI equivalent of a table view, populate that list view with a number of records from a core data store. Each uh -huh. one of those, you can, I guess to create those, there's a add button at the bottom that brings up a modal window, which in UIKit uses the modal segue. And you just segue to another view controller, you know, pass in anything you need via dependency objection, have a done button, have a cancel button, that type of UI. Enter some data, hit done, save it to the core data store, close the window. Gosh, that. Joe, that, that sounds really simple. Mm -hmm. Do that as many times <laughs> as you need. And then the other side of that is editing those list items. So tapping the edit view in the top of the screen 
you see in lots of iOS apps. Put the table in edit view, show a little round button with an eye, this you know, information icon that you see. Tap that to reopen a modal view populated with that record's data so you can change it and then hit cancel or done to close it. Really basic stuff. Like every iOS app can do this really easily, except for mine, apparently. Oh. And from what I can tell, this is mostly to do with the sheet modifiers, how you open a modal. It's just broken. It's either the sheet modifier is broken or something about the way that the modal is being created and then never updated properly just isn't working. But over the last couple of weeks, I have I have working versions of that stuff. I can I can add stuff, no problem. But sometimes when I use the add modal, it breaks the table view edit button and makes it so that you can't toggle into edit mode or you can't reliably toggle into edit mode. Or if you do, you can't open the edit modal. Other times, and I guess the, the most persistent issue is when you open an item on a list to edit it, you can open it, it'll populate, edit it, change it, either cancel it or done. When you close that modal, that modal is effectively broken for the rest of the application session. Or not application session, but until you navigate somewhere else and come back. Lovely. Um, and not just for that list record, but for all of the list records. So if you want to <laughs> update you know, the spelling or the name of three different list items, you, can, you, you can't. You can only do one. But... It's, it's just the view that's not updating. The data is being passed. So I can add some print statements in and I'm passing my core data object. I can print that out and see that it is being passed and I can even edit it. So when I, when I pop over in that modal again and it's not showing the data that you're editing, I can still type something new there and save it and it will update that very record. So this is just view stuff that's not working. It's, which is even more infuriating. I just figured that out, I don't know, like 10.30 Saturday night. <laughs> like I wasn't even working. I'm like, wait a second. I, let me try something. <laughs> so yeah, I have been, I've tried a lot of different stuff with this. I've tried, my initial approach was one view. So one edit view that, that can handle adding records or editing records with some basic, you know, if then logic. You can pass it an optional record to edit. And if there is nothing to edit, then it just creates a new one. Pretty basic stuff. And I had, then I had one sheet modifier that you would either, it had a little bit of conditional in it to either pass it a value or not. And so that was where I started. When I started running into all these issues, I decided to separate these into two different things. So I had... First, I tried to make two different sheet modifiers using the same view. Um, and the way, I guess when, it, when I say sheet modifier, basically there is no Swift UI equivalent of just calling a function to open a view in another window. It, that just doesn't exist. What you do instead is create a Boolean variable marked as a state variable. And then when you declare the sheet, you tell it what bool that it's watching. And if that bool is set to true, then it will present itself. And when you set it to false, it will dismiss itself. 
and you see this a lot throughout Swift UI. A lot of different controls work that way. And it, that's that's really cool if they can get it to work reliably, but so far they haven't. Um, so I tried, you know, having an open add modal, open edit modal, separating them into two different bulls in case they were interfering with each other. And then I tried separating them into totally different views. So I, you know, stripped all the code down to the most basic stuff. The add mode, the add view can only do what it does. It doesn't have any of the conditional stuff for editing and vice versa. So I ended up with two different sheets, two different sheet modifiers and two different views, each doing their own stuff. And they were still kind of interfering with each other. And I posted some stuff on Stack Overflow last week and somebody recommended that I take all of the sheet modifiers, like I had already known to take them out of the list view. The most intuitive thing to do is to attach the sheet modifier to the button or the whatever element you're tapping on to change the bool. But that's allegedly a known issue in list views and scroll views that tends to break. And I say allegedly because this known issue is not on the known issues list <laughs> that I can find. But people keep saying that. I'm like, stop saying that. You know, show me a link if it's a known issue. What uh, what radars have you filed? But uh, so, you know, I had my modals outside of that. And somebody recommended I put them all the way outside of the navigation view, which is the top view in my list view hierarchy. So I put them outside of that and then attached them to basically some text elements that have nothing to display. And then the text elements themselves are hidden. So now my top element is just a V stack that contains a navigation view and two hidden elements. And those two hidden elements have the sheet modifiers and they're each monitoring their own Boolean value. So that fixed the problem with the add modal messing up the table view. So that, that problem is gone now. I can add as many records and no longer interferes with the edit process at all. But I still have this other problem with the repeat editing trips. And I did, you know, I spent time Saturday night just throwing different stuff at it. I tried to get rid of core data entirely. I just re-implement re the entire thing with just passing a string. And even a, a regular string doesn't get reprinted in a screen. Even though I can print it in the console, when the modal opens, the code that is supposed to be repopulated in the text field never gets called. There's no initialization functions being called. And even the onAppear modifier, which should be called on anything that's presenting on screen, that doesn't get called either. So I have no way, I, I can't find a way to, when this thing opens, do something. I even tried to write some functions to do it and there's no there's nowhere to trigger them. <laughs> like I can write a function that will change the uh, the state variable that shows the text in the field, but I, I can't call it anywhere. And you can't write, I can't just from the initial view, I can't create an instance of this view, attach it, you know, keep it in a variable or let, and then call a method on it because you can't even do that. <laughs> because I'm calling this code initially from a computed property in a struct. So I can, it's not like I can just say, make a new instance of the edit view and then call this method on it after you create it, which is like a pretty simple common thing to do. 
So right. yeah, I have no idea what to do at this point other than wait and just, you know, we're nearing the end of the summer. Um, I guess follow up from last week, I did, you know, I was griping about not having an Xcode update in quite a while and they did <laughs> release one later that day or maybe the following day. But it obviously didn't solve any of my issues. And, you know, you know, we're probably waiting on the GM of Xcode this week, assuming there's an Apple event, not next week, but the week after, um, and assuming that they're actually going to launch the stuff on time, then the hopefully the stuff will be fixed or they don't even know about it, which is what scares me even more. I haven't submitted a feedback for it because I don't even know where to start. Like the only way to even submit that feedback is to give them my entire project, which they don't want. They want a sample project. Right. And like I, I'd have to remake the entire project as a sample project in order to reproduce the same thing. So yeah, it's, you know, kind of not good. Um, so that led me to what I'm working on this week, which is not this. <laughs> after pretty much an entire week of banging my head on the desk and just feeling frustrated and not making progress like you know i put seven hours in every day to this and just never got where i wanted to be i need a break i need to do something else and i sold another small web project that's going to be kicking off soon and i did some spent some time this weekend looking ahead at the rest of the year and this is pretty much my only chance for any time off for the rest of the year so I'm going to take kind of a vacation, but not really. Like I'm not actually going anywhere and I am doing some work, but it's just not this. I'm doing some some work on my own database that's, you know, a bunch of changes I'm going to do. I've got some finance stuff I need to do. I've got a little bit of uh, PHP work to do for one of my existing customers, just kind of like on the Sunday maybe list. And then I've got a FileMaker migration to plan just just odds and ends stuff I've been kind of kicking down the road for the last mm -hmm. couple of weeks as I've been working on this stuff. So I'm going to take this week and just get some small victories and get some rest and maybe regain some sanity and confidence and then maybe wait for an Xcode GM and try again. You know, Joe, I, I think I like this show a lot more when we're making progress. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's way more fun to sit down and have a conversation with my friend Joe and talk about success. Yeah, make trying hard, and at the end of that struggle, things work. Mm -hmm. <sighs> yeah, not this week. No, I think we'll have some of that next week. Though we have a special guest lined up for next week. That's right. But yeah, this week is just sadness and tears. <laughs> so on the on the stack overflow topic you mentioned that you were going to post your first question there it may sound weird that we're both longtime developers and you know dave never posted on stack overflow i only recently did and i think that just represents the type of work that we're used to doing versus the type of work we're doing now because i've never posted on stack overflow because i've always been able to find the answer to my question on everything i've ever worked on yeah usually on stack overflow yeah like the question I have is one that's been asked a hundred times. Mm -hmm. And so I just need to read eight or 10 of those answers and go, oh, okay, great. Yeah. 
This is um, especially true with Unity stuff um, and even the other iOS stuff I've done. Like UIKit stuff is old and boring now. Like it's incredibly well documented. There are tons mm -hmm. of solutions to every problem you can think of. And that, that just doesn't exist yet for Swift UI. So I posted, I think, four questions in the last two weeks. And finally have have enough Stack Overflow, I don't know, brainwashy currency to be able to upvote stuff for the first time. <laughs> um, but I did notice yeah. some weird stuff that, just some weird behaviors that I never noticed. So I post a question, somebody posts a potential answer, and it, you know, kind of but not really solves the answer, and then they delete it. Like, if they don't what? get the answer accepted, they just delete it. I guess because they don't want it on their record of, like, bad answers or incomplete answers. I'm like, what's the value of this? Are you more concerned with your reputation on Stack Overflow than, than solving problems? And if so, then please go away and don't speak to me. But... I mean, I wish there was a way to like huh. auto ban people who were only interested in increasing their stock over stack overflow crap. Like, I just don't care about this stuff. I'd much rather have, you know, a long conversation where somebody can read through all the different reasoning that went about finding a solution than just here's the code to copy and paste. Yeah, gamifying systems almost always has weird interactions that you don't expect. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people who, I mean, the, the fact is I can't upvote an answer. Yeah. I, I don't have that privilege yet. As a matter of fact, I have to ask questions to get the points to be able to upvote answers. So I've been getting phenomenal use out of Stack Overflow for years mm -hmm. and have never been able to actually contribute to the community in any substantive manner because I'm not permitted. Yeah. That's exactly where I was. Weird. And then I compare this to other places like the FileMaker community where, sure, you it you can ask a question that's been answered before and somebody may post a link to it, but more often it's a new conversation. It's a new, mm -hmm. like, particularly because FileMaker updates every year and things change. So mm -hmm. sometimes it's worth having that new conversation. And then also stuff like the Oculus forum, the developer forum, where it's like, their SDK has moved so fast over the years, it just doesn't even make sense to look at the old questions. <laughs> they just, the technology is moving so much faster than other types of developments. Like the API, like if you diffed the API from 2015 and today, there's probably not much that's left. It's probably entirely rewritten by now. Um, and then stuff like Unity was just like, you know, stupid questions welcome, which is kind of weird for the gaming community because the rest of the gaming community does not like stupid questions. <laughs> yeah, the, the there are imperfections in the FileMaker community, but mm -hmm. it is really one of the best developer communities I've ever seen. Yeah. Just, you know, people periodically get slightly annoyed <laughs> but it's nowhere near what happens in other communities. Like, just as a general rule of thumb, somebody will be perfectly happy to answer that question. And that community doesn't even have the weird currency. They did for like, a while, yeah. Yeah, but there's no there's no substantive point system 
that means anything that unlocks new privileges. You just had a rank, right? Well, no, for a while there, there was like so many upvotes and stuff got you unlocked badges and stuff. But I think they, they might have gotten away with that with their new system. Hmm. I don't know. I haven't posted anything in years because I just text my friend Mike if I need to know something. <laughs> Direct line. Now, Mike was community member of the year at least once. So it's he, effectively no different from what he was normally doing. But It's like, which inbox do I want to spam? <laughs> so yeah, what are you, uh, I guess that's kind of what I'm on this week. What are you going to do this week? Um, well, post that Stack Overflow question, and in a perfect world, I will get a great answer really quickly. What was the response time on answers that you were seeing? Was it pretty quick, or? I'd say within a day, each of them. There's okay. not a ton of people working in Swift UI right now. I think most people had written it off about halfway through summer. Um, so it's all of the Swift UI topics on Stack Overflow, there's probably only like 50 or 60 of them, and they're all the same maybe 20 people okay. posting about it. But yeah, within a day. Um, I will say there was a couple of questions that I didn't post. So if you go through the Stack Overflow, like wizard guided question thing, it is pretty good about making me formulate my thoughts. And this isn't necessarily a Stack Overflow thing, but just mm -hmm. the act of creating enough detail and documentation to solve my problems is often enough. It can sometimes be good enough to help me think through what the problem is. So there were several things that I was writing a question and got about halfway through it and solved my own problem. There appear to be so many antler conversations online that Stack Overflow returns the first 500 and stops <laughs> answering. I so I, I have no idea. I even tried doing a search just for antler 4, which is the latest version, and that hit 500 and was too many. So... <clears throat> Um. Yeah. So here's here's hoping. Um. Yeah. It's uh. See if I can get that question answered. See what's going on, and then start working on expanding the grammar to cover more stuff. Mm -hmm. Um. And start building out a much denser unit test list. Just get. You know, get a hundred unit tests done would be great. Um, which sounds horrifying, but yeah. will will just feel awesome. Because that was the problem that I said. That was why I got into the unit testing was I was writing some stuff and went, hey, success. And then I moved on and altered the grammar and started working with a new problem you know, a new segment of the way a calculation could be written. And I get that one working. And then just for fun, I went back and tried the first one. The first one wasn't working anymore. And I'm like, okay, I have to be able to, to track all of these simultaneously to test all of these variants in a single button press. And so that was a bunch of time this week was getting the unit testing framework set up and getting everything integrated and making sure all of that was working. And uh, I also put a bit of a UI on my test app so that now I'm not looking at the console to see what the output was. It's actually dumping it onto the screen and I can look at the console to see actual debug messages and things like that mm. rather than 
just seeing, okay, the output is what I expected, move on, turn this into a unit test and move on to the next thing. <clears throat> and optimally, I need to be moving in the opposite direction, which is more test-driven development where I start with the unit test. Like, when this all works, this is how I expect it to generate the output. Mm -hmm. Now, let's start writing the code. So, yeah. Fun. Well, this week will be basically my my Xcode vacation. <laughs> the, from Xcode, not to Xcode. Yeah. What, what would the Xcode beach look like? I mean, there'd probably be a lot of red dots. 